Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Before I dive in today, I have a couple things I want to talk about. First, I really didn't know what to call this episode. Yes, the name is Rise of Qin, but it technically is also the Warring States Period Part 5, and it could equally be called that. But part of me just couldn't bury this incredible story with that name, Part 5. Because it's more than that. The Rise of the Qin isn't some one-off cool story filled with amazing history. It is a cool story, and it is filled with amazing history. However, it's not a one-off story. Instead, the rise of the Qin here would be a springboard for the rest of this story. Not just for a couple stories or anecdotes, but for the entire future of China. Now, secondly, I have some really cool news. So I got an email from an RSS reading website, i.e. a podcast site, called Feedspot. And they alerted me that Eric Andreessen's The History of China is in the top five of all Chinese history podcasts around. So thank you, Feedspot. I am honored. And specifically, we've gotten ourselves to number three. And we're only, what, 17 episodes in? So we have tons of time to go after that number one spot. And thank you all that have made this possible. And make sure to give a like and a follow. And be sure to share the show with others that you think would really, really love it. But back to business. Last time we met, we discussed the rise of the Qi, the QI, and the decline of the Wei. Sun Bin got the best of the way two times, and now the Qi began to solidify themselves as the preeminent power in ancient China. But the Qi were all the way on the east, and all the way across to the west, there was a storm brewing. The Qin state, Q-I-N, is a bodybuilder. But they just discovered steroids. Now let's see what happens. So without further ado... The History of China, Episode 17, The Rise of Qin. Last time we talked about the Qin, they had just surged across into Wei territory. They did well. It was in the 360s. But fundamental change was coming. The foundation of the Qin was about to be re-dug into the bedrock and laid in with rebar concrete. And it was going to be built up with the best engineering. Obviously, that's an analogy. They didn't dig a hole in the Qin state. There wasn't an actual foundation, but yeah, you get it. But anyway, what exactly happened? Well, enough with the exposition. Let's get into it. I always talk about these great figures. And you know by now that I always try to highlight them when they come about. And well, this one is one of the most important so far. Not really for his entire resume, which it was great, completely but it's what his actions helped spurn on in later years that really solidifies him as one of the most important characters we've talked about so far. And this is what makes it interesting. I've mentioned his name before, but this is where those two stories meet. Because his name is Shang Yang. He was one of the crucial reformers of that pesky and extreme school of thought that I just can't seemingly get enough of. Legalism. And as I've mentioned before in a previous episode, the Qin were a little bit introverted at the start of the Warring States period. And it didn't mean that they weren't entirely capable of waging war. 
though their aversion to it did lead some states to believe that they were not capable of it, as we saw with the Wei and Han. But the Qin government was in the process of doing what every major power during the period was doing, and that was centralizing their power, or at least trying to. But because of Shang Yang and his mindset and his policy based around legalism, the Qin were going to do it in the most insane of ways. Now, one of the important things that Shang Yang did is that he looked around and realized that the system of big noble clans fighting over control of power within a state was bad for the state. So he found a way to increase the state's power at the expense of these noble clans. But how's he going to do that? Because he wanted the Qin to be strong, he wanted them to be centralized, and he wanted the state to be at its full potential. And he did not have to look that far to see the worst-case scenario. Because to the Qin's east, the once hegemon Jin state fractured along those noble lines, and Xiangyang, who was born in the Wei state, wasn't going to let the Qin break into three or four or however many. So Xiangyang, realizing this noble problem, created a law that abolished primogeniture. What is primogeniture? Well, I didn't know before I read about it, but essentially what it is is a system of giving power or succession to the firstborn son. Now, it sounds like I would love a system of primogeniture because, well, I am the firstborn son. But Xiaoyang got rid of it. And he got rid of it for a very specific reason. The noble clans couldn't now just hand over any administrative title or position or what that they had to their oldest. Remember, think back to the Jin state. You had certain noble families that would essentially monopolize certain bureaucratic functions. You had some that were there for the agriculture. You had some that controlled all sorts of things from the military to the merchants to the trade. It was essentially like a family-run union. But now Shangyang got rid of that. But there's a loophole, obviously. Because what if you have a youngest? Now, you can't give it to the oldest, but technically you never said anything about giving it to the youngest. And while I would be deathly afraid of anything being handed over to my youngest brother, Shangyang saw through this loophole. Because what he did was interesting. Because he instituted a double tax on any household that had more than one son living in that household. And that's the catch. It wasn't a one-child policy or a one-son policy. It was a tax on keeping two sons at the house at the same time. And that double tax worked in two ways in Xiangyang and the Qin state's favor. On one hand, it cut off the, you know, loophole. Now I'll just give power to my youngest because it discouraged you from having that youngest around. But where would that second son go? Or that third son? Or that fourth son? Where is the easiest, surefire way to get them out of the home to avoid this double tax? You guessed it. The military. But even in bureaucratic positions, Xiangyang made those a meritocracy. Your noble name did nothing to help you. And that was essentially what legalism was in its purest sense. You do your job, and you do it the best. And you have to earn every last thing that is given to you, and if you don't, there's going to be some strict consequences. So Shangyang has essentially neutered the noble family's way of succession. He makes it impossible for these noble families to sort of monopolize these bureaucratic functions. Now you can't have, you know, a single family run, you know, 
year after year, generation after generation, be the ministers of agriculture. Can't happen anymore. So now the state's better off for it. And as we saw at the Jin state, these noble clans can get powerful and they can do a lot of damage. He stopped them right in their tracks. So with the central government strengthened, nuclear families promoted, and powerful clans neutered, what else did Xiangyang do? Well, in keeping with his legalist code, he was going to make sure that people did their jobs, whatever those jobs may be, and he was operating with a zero-tolerance policy here. Now, this was a meritocracy, which was not usually the way other states ran things. So when, let's say, a farmer smashed through the harvest quota given to him by the Qin government, he was rewarded. He was rewarded with land because, yes, Xiangyang privatized a lot of the land. But what if that farmer didn't? Not only didn't exceed the quota, but didn't even get the quota. So here, Farmer A did great. He crushed the quotas, maybe did 10% extra. So Xiangyang's legalist government would reward Farmer A. But what about Farmer B? Because Farmer B, for some reason, let's just say, had a terrible harvest. He wouldn't get fined or asked to explain why or just do better next year. No. Instead, more likely than not, he would be enslaved. But then where would the slaves go? Well, they would sometimes be used as rewards given to Farmer A, who exceeded his quota. Your neighbor could have done terrible. Well, now he's enslaved. And guess what? You know, you did such a good job. You can have your neighbor as a slave. Legalism was a high stakes game. You were rewarded for doing well, but you were punished horribly for not. And it wasn't just do really well. If you didn't just meet the minimum, you were in big trouble. But the Qin state had a problem that Rome would face some 275 years after this point where we are now. And by the way, we're in the 340s-ish BC. But that problem was the military. Those who are more adept in Roman history may already know this. But Rome at one point had a problem because their military was made up of landowners. It was an army of landowners. And landowners and farmers are great. They're super loyal, they're educated, and they, yes, farm a lot. But what happens to their farm when they are sent on campaigns somewhere far, far away for years at a time? You guessed it. Their farm is now super susceptible to going belly up. And if their farm goes belly up, then their land is bought by a wealthy landowner, maybe a senator. And now that soldier who was a landowner and was forced into the military or volunteered into the military is no longer a landowner. And now, yeah, it's a cycle that had Rome's conquests slowly make it harder and harder to actually have soldiers in the army to do those conquests because they had such strict requirements. And now Xiangyang saw the same issue for his state. Obviously, he had this without the knowledge that Rome was even a thing, probably didn't even know Europe was there, but he saw this problem ahead of time. And this was because the Qin lacked one thing that most other states at the time didn't, because the Qin state lacked manpower. Last episode, we saw the geographically smaller Wei state 
field armies nearing 100,000 soldiers, and then would have those armies just get crushed, only to then wait a few years and be back at full strength. The Qi as well, same thing. No wonder the Qin were risk-averse at the very onset of the warring states to conflicts. Because, yeah, on one hand, they had a lot of business to take care of domestically. But one mistake militarily, and they're in serious existential trouble. So, Xiangyang, being a legalist, a supporter of meritocracy, and in desperate need of manpower, recruited members of every class. And yes, mostly from the peasant classes into the military. But again, that doesn't fix the problem. Because if your working class isn't, well, working, how is that army, let alone the state as a whole, how are they going to eat? But yet again, we see the policy genius Shangyang again put in place a fantastic solution that benefited himself and the state in several different ways. And you see this. His solutions are seemingly multi-sidedly amazing. Well, you know, amazing in the grand scheme of things, I would probably never want to live in that system. But look, his peasants were now joining the military at high rates, which is good. He needed a military. But now who was going to work the field when those peasants were gone? So he actively sought out an open immigration policy to allow peasants from all the other states to come to Qin. And this works first off by shoring up any potential manpower issue, whether that be too many men in the army, not enough in the fields, or vice versa. But it also shores up that the fields will indeed be worked. They will be tended to. People are going to be able to eat. But it also works for the Qin because it unequivocally does not work for the other states who are now losing their peasant classes in droves. Not only did Xiangyang better the Qin, he severely weakened his allies. And that's the genius of it. And before I continue though on Xiangyang, I just want to step back and take a look at everything we've just talked about. It was a lot really fast. But nonetheless, Xiangyang in office, well, he wasn't the duke, he wasn't the king, he was more or less the chancellor of the Qin state. And all of this change is only happening from 356 BC until his death in 338 BC. And you have to marvel at the scale of the change that he's implementing. Because everything is uprooted at every level. The military, the family system, the farming system, the immigration system, the way we punish criminals. I mean, all of it is just completely flipped on its head. And now, living in the United States, we tend to think a two-term president makes a lot of change. You know, maybe my president didn't win, and I see the next eight years as hell. Oh my god, what are they doing? And then vice versa. But compared to this, I can't even wrap my brain around such breakneck societal change. He is completely uprooting everything and building an unbelievably strong state in less than 20 years. I mean, in the United States, what, FDR probably had the most change in maybe any president's time. But he was in office for what, almost four terms. Xiangyang did everything FDR did on steroids. And he did it without modern communication. He did it without having fireside chats. He did it with carrot and stick, but with a lot of stick. 
And really, if I had to compare it to anything in the modern sense, it's more or less akin to the Bolshevik Revolution from 1918 to 1921. But even then, that was just a big change. The Soviet Union took a long time after that to sort of bolster itself up and become the power it would later become. Xiangyang is actively making one of the strongest bureaucratic states in the Warring States period. He isn't just revolting and burning down the old. No, he's completely rebuilding it. But let's go back to Xiangyang. Now, like Augustus, Xiangyang was obsessed with law. And he was obsessed with the laws of the family. Now, we talked about this already in terms of his plan to sort of neuter the noble clans. But Xiangyang wanted people to marry young. He put in tax incentives and made sure people, yeah, well, married, and most importantly, had kids. And manpower and morality, in both in one fell swoop, are dealt with. Now, while Xiangyang was extremely brutal to rule breakers, and he was really brutal to those who missed their quotas or their mandates, he didn't simply just see those individuals as worthless. Minor criminals or what have you who were not sentenced to death or some horrible enslavement were actually instead sent to wastelands in the Qin state to turn that land from nothing into viable farmland. Xiangyang would quote-unquote free them to have them turn once unfarmed and unusable land into arable and viable farmland for the state. I mean, everything he's doing here is just completely insane. But now it's hard to effectively say, and this is the sad part, and I'm sure you're used to hearing this now, that we're not really sure how many of these reforms were all Xiangyangs. Again, what the ancient historians attribute to him is sometimes put into question. Not as much as other people, like Sun Tzu. No, Xiangyang was most definitely real, so don't worry. But yes, he was in the Duke of Qin's ear, and he did set up a lucrative society-wide ranking system and a promotion system, and he did probably do most of this. And the fact is, with ancient history, there's no one really else to hear except for, well, those that were there. So while maybe, you know, some of the laws were done by maybe one of his successors, you cannot deny the change that Xiangyang set up. Because he set up this carrot-and-stick system. But, let's be real, it was a carrot-and-stick system with a very cute little baby carrot and a giant Teddy Roosevelt-sized big stick. And for those that don't get that, Teddy Roosevelt said, carry a big stick when talking about foreign policy. Because the fact was, everything was punishable. Everything. Small crimes, not meeting your quota, stealing, being out past a certain time, cheating on your wife, all the, I mean, every random little thing was punishable. And it was punishable to a very serious degree. And here's how serious everything could get. Ancient society was built around the household. And every household had, you know, five to ten members in it. But let's say one of them committed a small infraction. And, I mean, no matter how small. Let's say a small child stole a piece of bread. Or somebody missed their quota by a tiny little bit. It doesn't matter because everybody in that household was, quote, mutually liable, end quote, to report it. And if they didn't report it, 
they were all punished together. And yeah, you say, oh, well, what if they just didn't know? Doesn't matter. Does not matter in the legalist system. You were mutually liable for everybody in your household and yourself. Because look, if you let them steal bread and you didn't know, well, guess what? The whole household's going to get the harsh punishment together. You all don't know? Well, now you're all being punished together. And before I go on, though, again, on that point, it's really hard to know how harsh the chin really were. There was no detailed account of every single crime and every punishment signed and, you know, signed and sealed by a chin state bureaucrat. No. Because most of the historians, like Soma Chen and other historians that came from a later dynasty, were they really severing the heads of an entire family for minor crimes one committed? Did they really do all the horrible things we see? Or was some of it just anecdotal? Or maybe wholesale made up? Because the fact is, and this is what's weird about history, history is a weapon. People like Soma Chen and other historians that came from later dynasties all had issues with the Qin dynasty for other reasons, whether they were from the dynasty that got rid of them or they were from a different house or you know, the options are endless of why they could want to paint the Qin in a bad light. You know, they're the historian and disparaging the Qin would fit their own narrative and would fit their own interests. And as I said, history is a weapon. People who don't know Roman history probably consider Nero to be one of the worst emperors in Rome. And some even consider him to be the Antichrist. I saw him on a list with Hitler. But the fact is, Nero was not the Antichrist. Was he a great emperor? Absolutely not. But the fact is that he punished Christians, just like other people did, because at the time they were still a small band of heretics, but when the Christians became the bookkeepers of history, well, it's no surprise that we still to this day think that Nero actually played an instrument on his balcony as he watched Rome burn. And now that's almost unequivocally not true. From all actual accounts from the day, he was not in the city. And when he found out, he rushed back and helped the people of the city. But nonetheless, the Chin were definitely brutal, but to what degree you want to believe, well, that's up to you. And now I will say, though, for my own opinion, you know, some people might want it, they definitely were extremely brutal. And in fact, no matter what level you decide to settle on, it would shock you today. But the fact is, by 343 BC, the Qin State's bureaucratic overhaul, well, it was noticed, and it was noticed by everyone or at least noticed by the shell of a dynastic court that was the still somehow alive Zhou. And the Zhou king, in 343 BC, declared Duke Xiao, who was the acting ruler of the Qin state, because again, it was not Xiangyang, he was just the doer, the, he was just the doer, the chancellor, the policy whiz. But nonetheless, he declared the Duke Xiao, but nonetheless, he declared Duke Xiao of the Qin state, as a hegemon. Look, of course, useless title in this day and age. I mean, nothing comes from the Zhou dynasty telling you anything. But it goes to show how quick a growth the Qin really had. You know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, they were nothing. 
They were an insular power on the very periphery of everyone's western map, and now they're a hegemon? I mean, look, not really, but still. Now, in 362 BC, before Shangyang showed up and started reforming everything, the Qin were still strong. We know this. And they were still militaristic. Look, they crushed the Han and Wei forces that we heard about in a previous episode. But all it took to stop the Qin was the Zhao state posturing up and readying an army to keep the Qin at bay. But it's a new Qin state. And they were ready to start throwing their weight around. Because last episode, we talked endlessly about the Qi state and Wei state conflicts. And I mentioned how in 341 BC, Sun Bin of the Qi state finally gets the last laugh. And the Wei surrendered and had to cede some land to the Qi state. But as I said last week, there was blood in the water. And a shark picked up the scent. Now, that shark was a draconian legalist shark because it was the Qin state. The Qin state knew the way were now in some way subservient to the de facto superpower of the day, which was the Qi state. Yeah, they beat the way, but now the way were a sort of more or less their proxy ally. But this isn't the same Qin state that backed down from a fight due to a chance of conflict with the small Zhao state. The Qin state saw the way and their shaky alliance with the Qi, and all they saw was free land and free power. So in 340 BC, the Qin army just walks across the border, one year after the Qi beat the Wei, and the Qin crushed the remaining Wei forces. And they only stopped when the Wei offered to cede more land in exchange for a truce. Boom. Out of nowhere, you now have the Qin state. Yes, they were really good at beating the way when they were fighting on their own territory, fighting for their life. But now, they're willing to risk war with the Qi. They're willing to risk war with some of the biggest armies of the day. Because they know they can win. Now that was in 340 BC. But two years later, in 338 BC, Xiangyang's original ruler, Duke Xiao, had died. And the successor began to toss around the idea of being king. But that wasn't important to Xiangyang. Because Xiangyang's work was more or less done. He had spent the last, what, 18 years? 19 years? Doing nothing but absolutely revamping the entire Qin state. And now, the Qin state was ready to operate on its own. He did such a good job, and that's a problem with a lot of great figures... So you get a figure that's so great, maybe not great in our sense, but they're so powerful, so influential, that this whole system that they create is really just contingent on them being alive. But it's the fact that you can have a system that Xiangyang put in place that could begin to operate effectively on its own without him. You know, Genghis Khan was great. When he died, you know, some problems began to occur. And yeah, the Mongols held around for the next 20 or so years, but once you lose that key figure, you're all in trouble. You know, think Alexander the Great. His dad, great. His son took what his dad built, made it even more great. But once the really enigmatic and, you know, influential Alexander the Great dies, that whole system, I mean, immediately fell apart. But Xiangyang instead created a legal and societal system 
that would forever change the Qin state. But regardless, Xiangyang's work was done. But in 338 BC, Xiangyang, quote, had fallen foul on his own penal code, end quote. And Xiangyang was ordered to be executed and then was torn apart by carriages, end quote. Now, we don't know what Xiangyang did. There's some speculation. Nothing too bad. But ironically, it was his own system that saw his legs and arms ripped apart by carriages. And now Xiangyang may have left this story in pieces, but the Qin state has never been more strong and never been more intact than right now. This truly was the Qin and Qi's world, and everybody else was just living in it. Unless, well, you were the Chu. Whoa, haven't heard that name in a while. But what made the Qin and Chu able to cut in and out of this story is that they were considered quote-unquote others by the Xia people of the central states. You know, the states that are literally central in the map. So supposedly ethnically different, geographically on the edges, it's no surprise that the Qin and Chu were able to stay on the periphery of this story and on the periphery of the central states' minds. But they wouldn't always stay there, as we're seeing already with the Qin state. But what about the Chu? We have hardly seen them since their ignominious defeat to the Wu state. And the Wu themselves popped up, rose fast, then were soundly defeated by the Yue state. And the Yue, like the Qin state and the Chu state, were also able to stay on the periphery of this story. I said it when I talked about the Yue state. They kind of just fell off the history book. They had their land, and that's all they really needed. But the Chu, where to begin? It's been a while, and they were a fan favorite there for a little bit. But the Chu, as with other many big powers like the Qi and Qin, had been developing like crazy. Now look, nothing fuels, in my opinion, technological development, it seems, like war does. And in ancient China, the same thing happened. New metalworking abilities, better communication, simpler transportation, better food distribution, and yes, even some of the Generation 1 crossbows, first ever on Earth, are popping up right now. And these advancements would permeate down into society just as military radar, the internet, and nuclear power did from our own militaries today. So these militaries are advancing, and we'll get to it more about how this technology begins to really be harnessed. But again, we won't really see the full effect of that until the wars die down. But nonetheless, to the southeast, the Yue and the Chu are the powers there. But in the 330s, probably around 335 BC, the dates were a little murky, but the Yue state, the Yue state, begin to amass forces along their border with the Qi state. But why? Because go big or go home, the U.S. state were preparing to invade the Qi state. We had just told you that they were the hegemons, undisputed, most powerful at the moment. And the king of the Qi state hears that the U.S. state are preparing for war. And he decides to send an emissary to the king of the U.S. state, essentially telling him, Hey, look, don't attack us. We are way stronger. But hey, why don't you take this battle-ready army and just go invade the Chu state? 
Now, he didn't really say it like that, but that's essentially what he did because he said, look, don't invade the Chi state. He warned against it and then recommended to the Yue king that they instead invade their westward neighbor of the Chu state. And the king of the Yue state sat back and said, honestly, that's not a bad idea. So in 335 or 334 BC, the king of the U.S. state decided, officially, to send his army into the Chu state. But the Chu had a trick up their sleeve. King Dao of the Chu state had made a man named Wu Qi as the chancellor. Why is Wu Qi important? Well, because he's a legalist reformer just like Shang Yang. And the Chu had underwent a similar version, albeit not as holistic as the Qin state, but nonetheless went through a legalist restructuring of their entire society. So when the U.S. state crashed into the Chu, the well-organized, the militaristic, highly motivated, and highly organized Chu state simply counterattacked, pushed the Yue out of the Chu state, and then marched all the way to the Pacific coast, seizing the entirety of the U.S. state. Boom. How about that? The Chu were getting their old swagger back. Not all of it, but they're getting some of it back. And I can't emphasize, though, that while the Chu were getting stronger, their strength still dwarfed in comparison to the power, the sophistication, and the organization that the Qin state now possessed. And some people... Well, some people didn't like the Qin being this powerful. And you could wonder why. Because in 334 as well, same year the Chu knocked off the Qin state, a man named Sun Qing in modern-day Luoyang, probably in the Han state, had a solution to this Qin menace. Now, some background. The fact is, I only went over three schools of thought. When, as I said... This time period is also called the Hundred Schools period. So this Sun Qin character wasn't a disciple of Taoism or legalism or Confucianism. He may have learned about him, but he was the disciple of the founder of the school of diplomacy. And now you gotta love these simple, straightforward names. No super vague, super pack names. You know, Americans for happiness. No, just the I am in the school of diplomacy. And now what do you think this Sun Qin character was going to do, this school of diplomacy student? Well, if you guessed that he was going to start making a complex and huge diplomatically achieved alliance system to counter the Qin state, then bing, you are right. Because Sun Qin, ironically, with the same first name as the state he's trying to stop, QIN, but he goes around and begins to form what will be known as the First Vertical Alliance. An alliance of states to stop the ever-growing Qin state. But that is a story for next week. Next week, Sun Qin and the Vertical Alliance try to stop the Qin state. So, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to give us a follow and a like and to share us with your friends. And I'll see you all next week on the History of China.